James chapter 2, this song that we've just sung and all of these songs so fitting to the text before us in varying ways of application as we consider our walk with God today, we come to this second chapter of James, the second half, beginning at verse 14. If you would follow as I read uh, this text and as we get its thoughts in our, in our mind, James writes, verse 14 of chapter 2, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but does not have works. Can that faith save him? Rhetorical questions that present the thesis that James will bring. An illustration, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well, even the demons believe. And shudder, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the Scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works, not by faith alone. Second illustration, in the same way, we was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Lord, we need your aid to understand what James is saying to understand how it applies to our lives, we pray and appeal to You by Your Spirit that You would teach us Your truth. We thank You for this revelation and we're reminded here of the challenges that we have to integrate all of the Scriptures together in one. We're confident, Lord, that that is possible as the Spirit of God is the single author of all of Scripture ultimately. And I pray that you will help us to strive today to understand this text and to apply it to our lives. There are those here who know not Christ as Savior. I pray that this passage would steer them rightly to Christ and to His righteousness, not their own. There are those among us who know you as Savior who need the challenge and the conviction of this passage to not only be hearers of the Word, as we've seen already in this book, but to be doers of it. I pray that you will guide us and strengthen us for the glory of your name in this time together as we labor in this stewardship of learning, of faith, and trust in the words of the Lord, which are our life. Sustain us through them, we pray, and be glorified in the way that we attend to your word this morning. 
Through Christ we pray. Amen. There's a towboat that's moored at Harriet Island on the Mississippi River in downtown St. Paul. It was built in 1946, the 300-ton Covington once pushed barges of liquid cargo, usually petroleum, a thousand miles along the Ohio and the Mississippi rivers. With industry and with vigor, it served the river traffic of its day. But today, if you can see on this little sign here, the towboat is called the Covington Inn because it's been converted into a bed and breakfast. It's now been fitted with a lounge and with a nice dining room where you can get a meal in the morning and uh, there's places to stay that are very nicely designed within in this boat now. But today, as you might have seen in those moorings, the Covington is useless as a towboat. It has no future or use or value anymore along those lines. It might look pretty. It might be a respectable bed and breakfast. I'm not sure about that, but I would assume that it is. But as a towboat, it must be fundamentally changed or it will remain of utterly no value in pushing barges up and down the Mississippi River. In a manner of speaking... The faith of the born-again follower of Jesus Christ is to be like the Covington towboat once was. Quote, a busy little thing. A busy little thing. That's what our faith in Christ is to be at its very heart. Saving faith ventures off of its moorings to serve the cause of Christ and to do good up and down the river of life. When saving faith truly regenerates a soul, it always becomes a busy little thing in pursuit of good deeds. And we have to understand this rightly. Or we take it in the wrong direction, it can mislead us. But understood rightly, as James continues to exhort his readers to pursue a religion that is pure and undefiled, chapter 1 and verse 27, he stresses here in the second half of chapter 2, that the kind of faith that saves is the kind of faith that produces a life of good works. Now James could just as certainly stress that works without faith is dead. But the people that he's talking to, the situation that is before him, he says it in the other direction. He stresses that a professed faith in Christ that does not produce good works cannot save our souls from God's judgment. That's not how we are saved. A simple assent to truths. A belief that they are true. But by a faith that is coupled with a new life that works. His proposition we find in verses 14-17 through A faith that is unaccompanied by good works is useless. And again, and I'll continue to stress, we have to be very careful as we read him here, what he is saying and what he is not saying. But a faith that is unaccompanied by good works is useless, is his proposition introduced here in verse 14 by two rhetorical questions. What good is it? Someone says that faith, says he has faith but does not have works. Can that faith save him? What good is it? Can that faith save? The answers that we are to give, of course, is it's no good. And no, it cannot save. 
But what is so key, what is so critical here is to note there carefully in verse 14, he says at the end, can that faith save him? The that, literally the, is looking to the previous reference, and I think it's rightly translated here, that faith. We need to understand it's that kind of faith that he's talking about. The kind of faith that is not coupled with works. Can that kind of faith save anyone? James is not saying, we will notice, that to faith we must add good works in order to be saved by God. By coupling faith to our works, we will achieve the righteousness that God demands. He's not saying that. He's saying, does this kind of faith save? He attacks the kind of faith in God that fails to motivate a person to actively obey the Word in obedience to the Lord. That kind of faith is utterly useless. It's a boat permanently moored. It's not going to push anything around. It's not going to tug anything. It's not going to accomplish anything on the river industry. It's permanently moored. It's just a boat on moorings. It's a dead cell phone a hundred miles away from civilization, electricity, and a charger. It's really not very useful. It's a swimming pool with no water. It's a, it's a ski hill with no snow. When a person stands before God in judgment, the kind of faith that does not produce good works will prove utterly useless. He illustrates that thesis in verse 15. If a brother or sister is clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? A brother or sister, specifically someone in the Christian assembly, it would seem, although we should not forget Jesus' definition of a neighbor, But if a brother, sister, if a neighbor, if someone in your circle of influence is in such need, if that situation arises and all that you can come up with is good luck, hope it works out for you, or here's the pious one, I'll pray for you, right? I'll pray for you, which is good. But this person is in need. You have the means to help them. They're clearly in need. And you say, I'll pray for you. I hope things work out. And you walk away. James says, I want to ask you a question. What good is that? It's like the Covington seeing a barge go by that needs a push and says, I'm a towboat. It's not getting anywhere. It's not accomplishing anything. It does nothing. And this is his thesis then declared very pointedly in verse 17. Faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. It is faith, perhaps to some degree. It believes that there is one true and living God. Let's give it the full benefit of the doubt. It believes that Christ took on flesh. And He came to earth in order to die and pay the penalty of our sin. Christ rose from the dead in victory over death. It believes that Jesus reigns today and that He is coming again. But these truths, though believed to be true, 
lay no claim on one's moral choices or pursuit of good deeds. That kind of faith is useless. And we could push James. I'd rather live next to a neighbor who believes those things to be true than believes that it's okay for him to shoot me if he wants to. It's good to have those ideas in mind rather than to not have them in mind. James isn't going there. He's not filling in all of the blanks. But what he is saying is at the end of the day when you stand before God, such faith will be meaningless. It will not matter what you believe. That kind of faith is dead. It's not living. Faith in God that does not produce loving obedience to God and active service of others is not the kind of faith that will save. There's a different sort of faith that we must be seeking. Now what James is going to do at verse 18 is defend this thesis. Faith that is not coupled with works is a dead sort of faith. He defends that, first of all, by this statement in verse 18, faith without works is no better than works without faith. It is difficult to determine here in verse 18 when he says, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. It's difficult to determine if the someone to whom James is referring is a supporter or a critic. It's hard to determine when this someone stops talking. Remember, there's no... Uh, quotation marks in the ancient text. And the determination that we make along these lines is, is somewhat changes the interpretation. But we're not going to labor through the options here, but James seems to be saying that faith without works is no better than works without faith. I think that's the idea of verse 18. And I think it's someone objecting and not someone specifically. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. James, I think, says, show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. One without the other is useless. So the Protestant who believes salvation is by faith in a doctrinal creed or a tradition is no better off than the Roman Catholic who believes salvation is achieved in part by works. For as James continues, secondly, verse 19, faith without works does not distinguish one even from the demons. He's not playing real nice here. He's very much warning us to be aware of this problem. Verse 19, you believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. One. God is one. I think that it certainly means that there's only one true and living God. You believe that. You believe in the oneness of God. But it's difficult to read this verse in light of the Hebrew context and not think of the great Shema that the Jews would announce twice a day. Deuteronomy 6 and verse 4 says, The Lord our God, the Lord is Ehad. One. We don't really even know how to translate it, but it means unique, one of a kind, the only. He is Ehad. I think that's what James is saying here. You believe that God is Ehad. You believe that He is one. You believe in the uniqueness of God. But recognize, so do the demons. So do the demons. It's right, and it's good to believe that God is one. But the demons 
are convinced of the same truth. In fact, not only are they convinced of that truth, they are so convinced, they so believe it, that they shudder with fear. They quake with fear to know the uniqueness of God, the holiness of God, that He alone is the true and living God. They know that and they shudder with fear. Believing the truth will do nothing to save demons and it will do nothing to save anyone else from God's wrath. So faith without works is no better than works without faith. Secondly, faith without works does not distinguish one from the demons. And thirdly, faith without works fails to synchronize with the biblical record of salvation. And that's what he does next, is to draw two examples from the Old Testament text to prove his point. Verse 20 He speaks of the example ultimately here of Abraham. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? James' readers revere Abraham as the father of faith. And we should too. We should recognize that when it comes to exhibit A of faith, It's Abraham in the biblical text. And perhaps the pinnacle of Abraham's faith comes in Genesis chapter 22. We have that very significant statement in 15.6 that he believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. But then we have the example, that lengthy illustration or story in Genesis 22 where Abraham is willing to offer Isaac as a sacrifice to God. We read of it earlier this morning. But in being obedient to God, to even give up His Son, His only Son, the Son of Promise, on the altar of sacrifice to lay His Son, Abraham there demonstrates his faith. But James looking at this epitome of faith, says, but do you not recognize that he's justified by works? If you're halfway awake here this morning, getting over holiday dulls, but you're halfway awake, you've got to read that, and it's got to trouble you a little bit, right? For those that know the New Testament, do we say it this way, that he was justified by works? Does not the Apostle Paul use this very same individual to say, We're justified by faith. Romans 3 and verse 20, For by works of the law no human being will be justified. Galatians 2.16, We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Now there's a lot of really smart people, scholars they claim to be, that look at these two ideas and say that they are at odds James does not agree with Paul. There were two different theologies that are going on and there's no way that we can reconcile the two. In fact, the foolish individual to whom James is referring, some go so far to say, is the Apostle Paul. But he's arguing against the Apostle Paul's statement here. I think we can do better than the scholars on that one. Did not Jesus say you must hate your father and mother? Didn't he say that? 
say, yeah, he did. And it, when he says it, it kind of is troubling. And we've got to work through that, don't we? Because does not the Scriptures also teach that we should honor our father and mother? Hate and honor are not the same thing. Obeying mom and dad is not the same as hating mom and dad. We recognize that there are statements in the Scripture that are made that way that seem to be in conflict if all you're going to do is compare them with each other in the moment. But look at the context. What does Christ mean when he says to hate mother and father? We understand him to be that he is ordering the loves of the heart. That the ultimate love is to be for God. Such that in comparison there is a turning away from mother and father. We are to love our mother and father. We're to honor them. But it depends on the context. It depends on what is being said and I think we can go at that this same way here in this passage. James wrote before the Apostle Paul wrote in the New Testament. And his definition of justify here has in view something a little bit differently than we find in the writings of the Apostle Paul. I don't think it's much different, but it is somewhat different. At least it's being developed in a different way. Paul speaks of justification in terms of a believer's initial Declaration of righteousness by God. So maybe to say it simply, Paul is generally looking at justification as conversion. What happens when we trust Christ as Savior? What does God do? He justifies us. He declares us righteous in that moment for time and eternity, really, ultimately. But James seems to speak here of justification far more about the immediate status and ultimately about the final standing before God. That in our final standing before God, not being declared righteous at conversion, but when we stand before God, ultimately, we will give account for our faith. Our works will be judged, understood rightly. So he speaks of the final judgment before God. Paul emphasizes, his emphasis was against those who believe they could do good works to earn a righteous standing before God. You see the context. There's some people saying, I can be a good person and earn God's favor. What does Paul say? We're justified by faith alone. Look at Abraham. His faith was credited as righteousness in Genesis 15.6. We're not saved by works of righteousness but james is addressing those who think something else and that is this that saving faith does not need to be accompanied by works i'm saved because i believe something to be true james says no that kind of faith is going to save no one Verse 22, he says of Abraham, you see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. James is fully aware that Abraham was declared righteous by faith in 15.6. He's going to quote that soon, but he stresses first that Abraham's faith was more than intellectual assent to certain truths about God. It was more than what the demons can say. He's God. He's to be feared. Abraham's faith produced the fruit of obedience to God's will. And that obedience demonstrated and completed Abraham's faith. Didn't add to it. Didn't add to God's salvation. But it completed his salvation, his faith, as he lived out that faith. 
Abraham's faith was working with his works, and his works completed his faith. Imagine what we think of Abraham. His faith credited his righteousness, and he gets to Genesis 22, and he says, God, I'm going to do my own thing. Now, I'm saved because you've credited righteousness to me, Genesis 15. I believe you to be the one true and living God, and I've followed you all the way to the promised land here, but this thing of sacrificing my son, no, I don't think so. I'm not going to do that. We would have some serious questions about the faith of Abraham, wouldn't we? Now, James isn't going there. He's not looking at that hypothetical, what if Abraham had not believed? But what he is saying is that it's Abraham offering Isaac on the altar that demonstrates the genuineness of his faith. His faith is coupled with works. You can't pull them apart as if they're somehow to be disconnected. And I don't think this is really any different than what we find in the writings of the Apostle Paul. Again, he's talking to people who think they can earn their salvation. They can please God by the things that they do to gain their right standing with Him. But listen to this same emphasis that James offers here in the works of Paul as he writes to Timothy, chapter 1, 1 Timothy 1, 5. He pleads with Timothy to defend true doctrine as a stewardship from God. There's the truth, the belief. We've received this truth from the Lord. Defend it. In fact, you need to address the false teachers in the congregation that are affecting the congregation there as you stand for the truth, once for all delivered. But then he says this, the aim of our charge is what? The aim of our charge is true doctrine, true belief. He could say that. He said that in a sense. That's not what he says. Paul, writing to Timothy, says this, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. A non-hypocritical faith. In other words, one that acts. One that does what God has said to do. Not merely sound doctrine, but sound doctrine that transforms daily living. That is always the end of true Christianity. It's not simply a body of belief. It's a body of belief that transforms the way that we live. Verse 23, the scripture was fulfilled indeed. It says, Abraham believed God. It was counted to him as righteousness. He was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works, not by faith alone. Understood in this sense, Genesis 15, 6, he's declared righteous 30 years before Genesis 22 when he offers Isaac. The genuineness of Abraham's faith was demonstrated in the obedience of Genesis 22. Faith is utterly essential. If it is real, it will transform the way that we live. If it is real, it will show itself in the life that follows. This is exactly what Abraham is demonstrating by his faith. And he adds to this illustration, verse 25, Rahab, in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? Remember Joshua 2? God's people are poised to possess the promised land. And through them, God will judge the nations of Canaan that had become morally corrupt to the very core. Rahab is part of that core. 
She's a prostitute in Jericho, just on the other side of the Jordan River, near the Dead Sea. And as the Israelite spies come, what does she do? Turn them in? No, she hides them. And in that simple act, dangerous, risky act, but in that simple act, she identifies with the true God. She says by her deeds, God is Ahad. He is one. He is unique. And she turns her back on her pagan gods there and identifies with the Israelites. And I would assume, why does James use her story? I would assume because he goes to Abraham, the man of faith, the patriarch of the Israelites on the one hand, and all the way to the other end of the scale, a Gentile prostitute. But using these two extreme examples, both are declared righteous because of their faith in the true God, which showed itself in obedience to the true God, in faith that acted. Had Rahab betrayed the Israelite spies in Jericho, had Abraham refused to sacrifice Isaac, their faith would be in the right God, but that faith would be ultimately useless. James gives the summary statement then, the final conclusion to tie things up here in verse 26. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. The analogy, the body without the spirit, that is death. And the conclusion, so faith apart from works is dead. Now the Apostle Paul's works stress that we must never trust good works to reconcile us to God. It's kind of a challenge here, isn't there? That we're reading James before Paul's writings. We're reading James with a knowledge of all of the New Testament, and we must bring that information to bear upon this passage. On the other hand, we don't want to read James just through the eyes of the Apostle Paul. He has a point to make here, and we need to grasp it. Christ alone can save us from our sin, not our good deeds. Do you hear that? For perhaps just a handful of people that are missing this, don't miss this. James is not saying you've got to be a better person and do more good works in order to please God and gain your way into eternity. That is not what he's saying at all. He is laboring to teach us, rather, that faith and works cannot be separated. Only Christ saves us. Only His righteousness atones for sin. But the kind of faith that saves is the kind of faith that works. Good works do not contribute anything to our salvation by meriting God's favor. But good deeds are organic to genuine faith. If a towboat never moves off its moorings, it is of no use in the river industry. It might be useful for something else, but tow boats must tow on the river. And in like manner, faith in Christ crucified and risen for the forgiveness of sins is useless if it is not the kind of faith that obeys God's Word. If it's the kind of faith that says, I believe all of the right things, but I don't want to do what God says... That's useless faith. 
It's the kind of faith that builds up God's people. It gives itself to the building up of the body of Christ. Not one that says, I'll serve myself and do things my own way. It serves the cause of the Gospel. It is anxious to see the Gospel spread and to see people hear the message of Christ crucified and risen. It loves a dying world with the love of Christ. It meets the needs that it can meet that are out there in front of it. And it longs to be a busy little thing on the river of life. That's the kind of faith in God that is saving faith. So in a sense, I indicated it earlier, but in a sense, James is really repeating the emphasis of 122. Be doers of the word and not hearers only. Deceiving yourselves. And James does this. He occasionally circles back to earlier themes in his book, and especially back to chapter 1, where the case is all laid out and the development follows. And it is clear, as he does so here, that the Christian life is about much more than intellectual assent to theological concepts. Now please make no mistake. No one is saved apart from trust in the truth that God has revealed about His salvation. The truth of who is Jesus Christ. He is God in flesh. He is the Creator and Sustainer. He is eternal God. Secondly, the truth of who I am. I am a sinner, alienated from God and deserving His judgment. I'm not my own God. I'm not a rival to God. I'm not pretty good. Just need a little bit of help from Him. I am a sinner separated from Him by my sin. Thirdly, the truth of what Christ did. He died in the place of sinners to pay the penalty of their sin, to redeem them from that sin, to break sin's bondage, and to reconcile them to God, rising from the dead to give life to His people. And number four, the truth of what I must do. I must believe these truths. I must repent of my sin, turning to trust and faith in Christ as Savior. All of that is absolutely essential. We must believe these truths. We must believe them to be saved. There's no other way of reconciliation with God. But, here's the thing. Salvation is not merely knowing and believing truths that God has revealed in His Word. The demons know who Jesus Christ is. They know what He has done. They know that He redeems His people. They know what we must do but they are bent to go the other direction. While they know the truth, they are serving with all of their might and strength Satan's designs. Genuine faith in Christ for salvation, when it is genuine living faith, it becomes a busy thing with hands and feet. It acts. True faith then Evidence is selfless giving in love toward others. It may cost you dearly. You may give of your time and your talents and your treasures to serve others, but it is anxious to do so. Genuine faith 
obeys God's word, even when it hurts, even when it doesn't feel good, when it goes against the very fiber of my being, I know that the word of God stands as a light and a source of hope and truth, and I bring my life in conformity to it. Not perfectly, with much failure, with repentance along the way, but genuine faith knows it's God's truth and seeks to conform to it. A fighting of sin and seeing progress in the midst of that sin. It may be painfully slow, but looking back, you keep fighting sin and you're learning to hate it and you're learning to grow through it in righteousness as you deal with sin on a day-by-day basis. This is saving faith. This is the kind of faith in Christ that saves. One that says, I will by His grace follow His Word, His truth, and grow in righteousness and holiness. So the question we've got to all ask ourselves in light of what James is saying is, can I give evidence of ways in which my faith in Christ as Savior is changing the way that I live? It's actually getting into my life. It's actually changing responses, reactions. It's changing loves. It's changing how I use my time, how I employ money, how I look at life and the goals that I set and establish. Can you point to clear evidences that your faith is coupled with righteous action on a consistent basis? We need to honor that truth in our lives individually. Eden Baptist Church, we also need to honor that truth in our lives corporately. As a body of believers. And this is one of the reasons that we have a fairly strenuous membership process in this church. We're not satisfied with someone saying, I believe certain things to be true. We're not even satisfied with a conversion experience. You had something happen to you at one point in your life. A spiritual experience that drew you close to God. That's good. What you believe is important. But we also seek a testimony of repentant trust in the gospel, belief in the fundamental truths of the Bible as vital, but... The process also includes how is your trust in the gospel changing your daily life? So we ask, provide evidences of new life in Christ. Evidences that show that you know God's word to be God's word and you're seeking to align your life with it. We don't ask this to be invasive. We don't ask this to be troubling to people. We ask this to line up with James. If you have the kind of faith that's not matched by righteousness in your life, it's dead faith. And if we as a church confirm that you're living the right way when you're not, what are we doing? What right and business do we have to be a church of Jesus Christ? We strive to be gracious in this and thoughtful in it and encouraging in it, but providing evidences of new life, showing that I have a faith in the truth that is following into action in life is what saving faith is. Apart from it, you might be no different than the demons. 
You know the truth, but it doesn't change you. And this even leads to the more challenging response in the life of a healthy church, of church discipline. Where it becomes clear that someone says, I am a believer because I've had this experience. I'm a believer because I believe these things to be true. But they do not live like a believer. They live in entrenched sin, unrepentant sin, and will not change and will not turn. What would James say? That's what Eden Baptist Church needs to say. Now, we are not the judges of who's saved and who's not in the basis of some sin that's entrenched in someone's life. They may come to a place of repentance. We may seek to encourage them to that end. It's not ours to tell them that they're lost, but it is ours to tell them your faith is deficient. Because the kind of faith that saves is the kind of faith that works. It's a busy little thing. Not to gain God's attention and favor. Not to reconcile ourselves with God through our works. But the kind of faith that saves is the kind of faith that works. That's what it does. This kind of faith that's not accompanied by works doesn't save. Verse 14. It does not profit. Verse 16, it is dead. Verses 17 and 26, it is no better than Satan's. Verse 19, and does not justify. Verses 21 and 25. Anybody wondering where James stands? <laughs> he's, he's not letting us wiggle out of this, is he? He says it time after time through this passage. Salvation without transformation is a myth. Now, somebody here might hear that and say, I'm afraid. I'm afraid. I, I know the facts of the Bible. I believe them to be true, but I just really don't see that they influence my life at all. Listen, if that's you, that's a really good thing to be afraid. I'd be far more concerned for you if you said, I don't care. If you're just dull in hearing this. But if you say there's, there's fear there, I don't know that my life is really being changed by the truth of God's Word. No, really, ultimately, I encourage you, don't fear, repent. I don't know what it is, but there is sin between you and God. There's sin that's keeping you from living out the joy of a life that's transformed by His grace. But let me also caution you here. Because you can go down a really dark trail. Do not see the answer as starting to get your life together. And I'm going to go from here and really start to live righteously now. James has said it's faith that works. So I'm going to get busy and start doing righteous things and earn my salvation. Christ's death earns our forgiveness, not our good deeds. Christ's death alone earns our forgiveness, not our good deeds. And James would wholeheartedly agree. But Christ's life of perfect obedience to God's law earned our righteous standing by being credited to us. 
It's Christ's life, it's His death that is necessary. The merit we need before God is not a merit we earn through our works, but a merit we receive through His works. A merit that produces a transformed life as a seed produces fruit. Going back to 1 in verse 18, it is by the word of truth that we are born anew, that we are given life, and that life produces works. So don't go from here. If you're fearful, if you say, I don't see that change in my life, I don't see those righteous deeds flowing from my faith, don't go from here and think that the answer's in your doing. The answer's in Christ's doing. He lived life perfectly and sinlessly. The answer is in Christ's death to free you from your sin. It's not in you and in your good works. What James is talking about is simply that person that is deluded to think, I've had an experience, I've walked an aisle, I've signed a decision card, I've prayed a prayer, I believe certain things to be true, and that's what I trust in. Trust in Christ alone. But he's helping us here to see that when we trust in Christ alone for our salvation, that faith produces good works. Genuine faith is active with the bustling business of living every day to the glory of Jesus Christ. Not perfectly. We must continue to repent. We must continue to seek His forgiveness because we don't live that way. But we are busy on the river of life seeking to do what is right to the glory of God and for the good of our souls. Let us pray for one another. Let us build one another up in that kind of faith. A faith that transforms. Let's bow for prayer. Lord, we need you to this end. We plead that you will continue to work in our lives as an assembly. We would not play the hypocrite as a church and confirm those who believe that faith can walk alone. That it's simply mental assent the truths that you have revealed, but I pray that we would recognize this truth that faith works. True faith is always accompanied by works. Help us, Lord, to help each other to see that, to build each other up in the faith. And I pray for those who may have mental assent, but there's no changed life. Lord, may they not simply fear, but may they turn. Today, may they come to repentant faith in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation, we pray. And I pray that each one of us would do the work to discern whether or not we are in the faith. If our faith is not changing us, it's useless. You've told us this. So we pray to You to produce in us what we cannot produce in our own strength. Save us by faith in Christ alone, but save us unto that life that You've designed for us to live faithfully and righteously following Christ every day of our lives. Help us to this end, we pray, through Christ. Amen.